Our thanks to our patrons, Tim Reeder, Mike Schill, Jenna Smith, Dan Hedrick, Carl Jackson, Richard Goode, Daniel Ammons, Sarah Rogers, Troy Llewellyn, Christine Gerber, Jay Hanna, Jim Collison, and the Great Plains Black History Museum, open by appointment Thursday through Saturday from 1 to 5. The North Omaha History Podcast is a volunteer effort, but you can help us meet expenses by becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Go to patreon.com slash Omaha. Welcome to the North Omaha History Podcast with noted author and historian Adam Fletcher Sassy. Each week, Adam takes you on a guided tour through Omaha's dynamic past. The 24th and Lake Historic District is being recognized more and more as a cultural asset to all of Omaha and to the Midwestern United States overall. The African-American heritage of the intersection includes jazz and blues, parades and big bands, and modern social justice movements stemming from the 1950s through today. Well, I think everybody in Omaha has heard of the 24th and Lake Historic District, Adam, but I know you're, you're, you're going to educate us as to everything else that has gone on there and continues to go on. Woo-wee, Steve. When we dig way back, man, we can actually see that 24th and Lake began to become important in the 1910s. Right then, you have these big band leaders starting to pop up in Omaha, and they were bringing the noise. Loud jazz, hyper performances, huge displays of beautiful music, wonderful dance, spectacular marching, just all kinds of stuff. And you got to remember, this was back in the era when TV didn't exist. The Internet was not even conceivable. And radio was just on the edge of becoming existent, let alone anywhere near popular. So you had folks who hungered for performance. They hungered for entertainment. They used to go to the vaudeville theater that was at 24th and Lake. It was called the Diamond Theater. And uh, there were other places up and down the strip. One of those places hosted bands. They hosted vaudeville performances. But it was just a tiny little one-story wooden structure that really wasn't very notable. It was called the Mecca Hall, M-E-C-C-A, Mecca Hall. And it was right on the corner of 24th and Grant Street on the uh, southeast corner. Well, the Mecca Hall, you know, it was jamming from the 1890s into the 1910s. And uh, all these bands were playing there and there were different events and stuff. But uh, in 1913, a big old tornado came through 24th and Lake. And it smashed a whole lot of things around that intersection, killed a lot of people, but really did a lot of physical damage to the intersection as well. Steve, one guy looked at that spot where the old Mecca Hall was, and he said, hmm, I could do something there. Now, this dude, he was a heck of a guy. He was born way back in 1869. So by 1913, he was already 40 some years old. And uh, he, he was named Jimmy Jewell. He was married to Cecilia. And the pair of them were already super active around that intersection and, and up and down 24th Street and around 24th and Lake. You know, with all of the live entertainment and action that was going on at 24th and Lake, there were entrepreneurs who emerged from within 
the Jewish community that was right there. They emerged from within the African-American community right there. And these entrepreneurs built their own places. Of course, the Diamond Theater, which was destroyed by the tornado but rebuilt right afterwards, was owned by Jews. There were other halls up and down the street. There were other a couple other theaters, vaudeville theaters at that point. And when they came back, they started innovating and adding new technology. One of the technologies was this whole motion picture thing, movies, talkies, silent theater. There were lots of different names for the different things that they were bringing in. One of them was a nickel theater where you'd pay a nickel and you could watch a series of photographs run really quickly. And it looked like the earliest films. These theaters were up and down 24th. And when Jim Jewell saw the corner of 24th and Grant, he knew that he could make something of it. Like I said, he was already a man about town and and was certainly busy. He had run businesses since the 1880s, including restaurants and a tavern uh, and a couple different things. And he had enough accumulation to be able to build a two-story brick building on the southeast corner of 24th and Grant. Jewel ran a pool hall downtown, and he knew that that was a busy operation. But when he was downtown, he was uh, charged with being a, quote, keeper of a gambling house over and over. And he knew that that wasn't because he was doing something that Omaha didn't like, aside from him being a black entrepreneur and serving white gamblers. He got ridden on the rail out of downtown. So he focused his construction up there at 24th and Grant on this corner where he saw opportunity. Because he knew that he could do the kind of operation that he wanted to have uh, without being bugged a lot by the police. You know, his wife, she was pretty important about town, too, Cecilia Jewell. Uh, She was raised in Omaha, born and raised in Omaha. She was born in 82, 1882. And by 1904, uh, she was 22 years old or so. She was a renowned uh, singer and performer herself. She had traveled to Europe. And had all kinds of experiences over there, brought them back to Omaha, and she connected with Jim Jewell and uh, married him. And they had their first kid in 1905, so just after they got married. Well, Jim and Cecilia Jewell, they, uh, yeah, they they took and they started getting all involved all around the community, and they were already involved around the community. They they had their fingers in all kinds of different pots. They were active in church. Uh, they belonged to Grove Methodist Church, which became the which became Clare United Methodist, which still exists up on Ames Avenue. But originally it was Grove Methodist Church, and it was down on the near north side. And they participated in the Negro Christian Women's Association. Cecilia was actually one of the founders of it, who also, she also helped found the Negro Old Folks Home, which was actually operated by the Negro Christian Women's Association. So she was tied in that way. She helped start the um, Omaha NAACP. Uh, and was a president of it for a little while. And eventually she became the music director at St. Philip Episcopal Church. So they were truly involved all around the area. Just as a side note, when Cecilia passed away, her obituary actually called her a political worker. Even though she never had a job doing that, she was an early community organizer and was really involved. And they really cared about fighting racism and segregation and were just really involved all the way throughout the community. So these folks had super deep connections throughout the neighborhood. They had super deep connections and were tied in with African-Americans all throughout Omaha. And, uh, yeah, they were super busy. So after that tornado in 1913, 
the buildings along 24th Street that were all wooden, most of them had been knocked down by the tornado. Jim Jewell saw that, and he knew that he could do better. So he built at the corner of 24th and Grant a new building. And I've begun to t- mention this, but let me explain it a little bit. It was different from the buildings around it. These other buildings around it were called St. Louis Flats. They had a business on the bottom and uh, apartments on the top. And some of those buildings still exist today, uh, just a few of them. But at one point, 24th Street from coming all the way to Lake was absolutely packed with two- and three-story buildings that were packed with apartments and packed with businesses. And Jewel built his own right on the corner of 24th and Grant. This building was two stories, is two stories, made of brick and built in a commercial vernacular style, which means that it was kind of designed for the local tastes. Um, had two storefronts in the and the first floor, which you can still see today, and two apartments in the backside uh, that were built for the Jewel family itself. And then on the second floor was the Dreamland Ballroom. The Dreamland Ballroom was unlike any place that existed in Omaha up to that point. Now, that didn't mean that there weren't other ballrooms around Omaha. Downtown Omaha got all kinds of business from traveling performers who would come through and play downtown. Uh, African-American performers from the East Coast often played downtown, but blacks in North Omaha weren't allowed to go see them. Those performers were performing downtown for white folks. So Jim Jewell, when he opened up his Dreamland Ballroom, he really built it for black people, which didn't mean that white people didn't come. It's just that he was serving what he knew would work for the neighborhood. He wanted to compete also not only with the downtown ballrooms, but also with Krug Park out in Benson and with the Carter Lake Club down uh, by Carter Lake. So he took and uh, built up this spot. He First, he hired an Omaha architect, a really popular architect, whose name was Frederick Henniger, um, a German immigrant who actually designed – 100 buildings in Omaha, if not more. Uh, and Henniger's design, you can go and see it today. The style that he used was called Georgian Revival. And it had all kinds of little embellishments. You can see geometric patterns and different brickwork that really signify this Georgian Revival style. The two storefronts that I mentioned on the first floor, they're split right in the middle by a doorway. And above that doorway, you can still see an engraving that says Jewel Building, 1923. That's the year that it was finished. It was 23. So Jim Jewel had the Jewel Building finished in 1923. He also put another entrance, just as a note, over on the uh, north side of the building on Grant Street. And the entrance to the second floor right there uh, says Jewel's Hall. And uh, Jewel's Hall was also called the Dreamland Ballroom. It was called the Dreamland Hall and had a couple different names. But it was a hall in that it hosted all kinds of different events. So in the beginning, from 1923 until about 1930, uh, Jim Jewell Sr. packed the ballroom with as much importance as he could. He partnered with one of the local priests, uh, uh, Reverend John Albert Williams. Williams led the St. Philip's Episcopal Church. Williams and Jewell partnered together to put together the annual Coronation of the Stars, um, there was a king and queen, Borealis, they were called, uh, to compete with or to provide an African-American version of the segregated Exarban coronation. Exarban wouldn't let black people join. And so this uh, annual ball that was put on by Reverend Williams at 
the Dreamland Ballroom, hosted and toasted uh, the finest African-Americans in North Omaha, doctors and lawyers and all kinds of folk who could afford to put on fancy ball gowns and wear tuxedos. And they would gather together at the Dreamland Ballroom, listen to live music and toast each other and crown a king and queen every single year. And that was the beginning of the Dreamland Ballroom from about 1923 until 1930. In 1930, Jim Jewell Sr. died. His funeral was at Grove Methodist, and uh, his wife made sure that it was a fine event. He was buried at Forest Lawn, and when he died, Cecilia still led a lot of the events at the ballroom, but she was a political worker, so she was out doing other things. It was their 25-year-old son who was called Jimmy Jewell, uh, Jimmy Jewell Jr. He took over the operation when his father died. Jimmy Jewell Jr., he ushered in a whole different era for Dreamland Ballroom. So between 1930 and 1939, you know, the Depression, Jimmy Jewell gained the reputation of being the wealthiest Negro in Omaha, the World Herald called him. The wealthiest in Omaha. And they called him that because he was raking in the dough. He had all kinds of events held at Dreamland Ballroom all throughout the Great Depression. Working class folks, rich folks, white folks, black folks, everybody showed up to Dreamland to listen to all of the hopping players. Man, they had so many people come through. The fact of the matter is that Dreamland was just alive. Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Louis Armstrong, Lionel Hampton all played there. They had regular players, including Earl Bostic, Ruth Brown, Fats Domino was a regular at Dreamland. Sarah Vaughn came through, Fater Terrell, Bull Moose Jackson, Billy Eckstein, Dizzy Gillespie himself. Those big old cheeks were jamming at Dreamland. Dinah Washington, Nat Keaton Cole played there over and over with his trio. Oh, man, Jimmy Jewell Jr. was alive, and he was bringing in everybody. Father Hines played there all the time with his orchestra, and really, they rocked the house. Great stories came pouring out of the Dreamland from people like Preston Love Sr. You know, Preston Love, he got his start at the Dreamland Ballroom. Uh, and when he got picked up by a band and he went to the West Coast, he later on wrote, North Omaha was like a little league in baseball, it was like a little league for the big jazz scene because these bands would come through from the East Coast. They would stop in North Omaha and Dreamland Ballroom to play, and they would pick out the best players from the local bands and take them on the road with them out to the West Coast and sometimes take them back to the East Coast, and these guys hit it big. And that's what happened with Preston Love Sr. before he started his own orchestra and came back to the Dreamland later on. Johnny Otis, all kinds of people played it. And Jim Jewell earned a reputation as Omaha's ace promoter because he led star after star into Omaha, who wasn't going to come there either. Otherwise, the building had a capacity of 600 attendees. And Preston Love would tell this story, um, and he wrote in his autobiography, about sitting on the back stoop of the building on the fire escape just to listen to the bands because he was too young to be able to go in legally, but they didn't chew him away. So he would sit there and listen to the bands rock out the whole time. Great stories emerged. And this was the cultural life of African-Americans in North Omaha, right there, right there at the jewel building, right there in the dreamland ballroom. And it's still there today. The building still stands right now. The world Herald wrote up, you know, they wrote up all the time about the events happening at the Dreamland because it was a hot place. 
But, you know, that facetious and angry and hate-filled racism seeped into their writing left and right. When Duke Ellington came into Dreamland for a gig in 1932, the World Herald, in all of their beneficence, wrote, quote, the cream of dark town's nightlife had a mean time, and fair-skinned boys and girls, fair brethren under the skin. It was a facetious and racist grab at a headline just to say that Duke Ellington rocked the house. Instead, they had to make a harsh statement about uh, how white people resonated with African-Americans' music then, but really took away from the value and the depth of that occasion with such a brutal statement. Anyway, that didn't stop the Dreamland from rocking on. And Steve, they kept pouring through. Along with Preston Love Sr., another star was born there. Her name was Anna Mae Winburn. You might never have heard of her or her band called the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. But the fact of the matter is she rocked and became one of the most important figures in all of jazz history, starting the world's most uh, important and the very first all-female jazz band to play worldwide, the International Sweethearts of Rhythm. The Cotton Club Boys and L Lloyd Hunter all jammed at the Dreamland and held residency there over the years. I could keep going, Steve. There are so many names associated with Dreamlands. You know, Nat Towles was a local guy who hit it big nationally, and he played at the Dreamland all the time, along with his saxophonist, this guy, Jimmy Littlebird Heath. Trumpeter and arranger Neil Hefty, trumpeter Harold Money Johnson, and a whole lot of other famous jazz players all started right there. Oh, the numbers are mind-blowing, man. 1940, Jimmy Jewell renovated the front of the building uh, right there, right before the United States entered World War II. But little did he know what was about to rock the house. In 1941, the largest crowd ever at the Dreamland packed into the hall when Count Basie played there. Just over 700 people, even though the room was only rated for 600. Well, you can imagine that drew the attention of the police all the time, and you can imagine that all kinds of people had all kinds of problems with it. But all the same, they rocked it. All the way until the beginning of World War II. Well, the beginning of the United States' entry into World War II. You see, Steve, at the beginning of World War II, the U.S. Army was still very, very segregated. Oh, wait, all the way through World War II, the U.S. Army was segregated. They had USO facilities, you know, the entertainment places for the soldiers. They had them all around Omaha, a couple downtown, one at Fort Omaha. And they were all de facto segregated. The rule, the unspoken rule that everybody understood was that blacks couldn't go into them. So the U.S. Army, by eminent domain, took over the Dreamland Ballroom. They made it into an official U.S. Army installation and declared it a USO club under the command of the U.S. military. And uh, they made the that USO club at the Dreamland Ballroom. They made it into a institution for blacks to come and listen to music and to relax and to hang out. They renovated the hall. They took it over. They, they took it from Jim Jewell. Jewell himself joined the Army because he was doing his civic duty. He jumped right in there and headed right out to war. And in the meantime, he lost control of his building because the army took it over. So the army converted it and uh, soldiers came through. They came and went over and over. 1945, Jewell left the army. He came back to Omaha and he got put onto the volunteer management team for the USO club because, again, it was his civic duty. He was doing the right thing for the country. 
Later in the year, that team planned to convert the building into the North Omaha Community Center. Uh, and for a little while, it was the Northside YMCA even. But Jewel ended up suing the U.S. government to regain his ownership of his building and his business. And he won. He got the Jewel, he got the Jewel building back and he reopened up the Dreamland Ballroom. He had to sue the government for 3000 bucks for damages and compensation in return for his commitment. <laughs> the Army gave it to him. They settled with him in return for his commitment to stop talking smack about the Army. And it worked. Jewel stopped. And he renovated the building back and, and brought back the Dreamland Ballroom. It stayed open through 1963. In 1960, though, Jewel reported to the World Herald and other sources that the Omaha Police Department was regularly harassing him, violating his rights. He testified in front of the city council to tell the story of how his home was being raided by the police over and over, especially after the report of an illegal gambling operation there. The police found nothing, but they didn't apologize to Jewel, and they didn't offer to pay for the damage they did to the building after busting the door down and wrecking a bunch of stuff inside. One city councilman from the Omaha City Council blamed the police for, quote, using Gestapo tactics. Even after all that, though, 1960, Jewel had been running the hall for more than 20 years, 30 years. The city council voted that there wasn't a problem because the officers had a warrant and that let them do whatever they wanted to. So in 62, the Dreamland Ballroom shut down. It stopped making money. And by that point, Jimmy Jewel himself was getting pretty old. He himself was born in 1905. And he lived all the way until 1997, but uh, by 62, he was he was uh, ready to retire and call it quits. So he shuts down the building, boards up the windows. Nobody moved in. The barber shop stayed open on the first floor uh, until 1975, and the tuxedo pool hall stayed open until 1976. But when they closed up, the building went downhill, downhill pretty fast. By 1980, the whole building was boarded up. you got to remember, the riots came through starting in 1966. There was one in 67, two in 66, one in 67, one in 68, one in 69. And when the building was all boarded up by the end of the 70s, by 1980s, uh, it was pretty rough looking. Luckily, right around 1983, the North Omaha icon known as Charles Washington he was an advocate, an activist, a reporter. He was all kinds of things to the neighborhood. That's why the North Library was named after him. Charles Washington led a campaign to save the Dreamland Ballroom starting in 1980. He went in front of the city council. He went in front of all kinds of places, anywhere where he could get attention for it. And through his work and almost his work alone, it worked. In 1983, the... Uh, the City of Omaha Landmark Heritage Preservation Commission placed it on their roster. That that year, the National Register of Historic Places listed it on their roster to recognize the significant place that the building had in African-American culture in North Omaha. And then the Omaha Economic Development Council, also called the OECD, renovated the building fully in 1985. Today, there are 11,570 square feet of functioning space all throughout the first and second floors with another 4,000 square feet in the basement. And the building is home to active and vibrant uh, institutions in the community. 
The uh, Great Plains Black History Museum moved back into the Jewel Building in, 19, in 2017, and it's a beautiful facility. You should go there right now. You should become a member of the Great Plains Black History Museum as well. I'm a member, and I've been supporting it for several years because I believe wholeheartedly in the powerful mission that they have. The building's been honored in several other ways as well. It became a mighty anchor of the 24th and Lake Historic District in 2018 when that was created. And in 2003, the city of Omaha opened up the Dreamland Plaza across the street. It's a tribute to the jazz history of the community, but obviously named after the Dreamland Ballroom. It's right there at 24th and Erskine, and uh, it's a beautiful, well-groomed plaza with a big nine-foot-tall statue called the Jazz Trio. It was put there in 2005 and was made by a sculptor named Littleton Alston, and it's this beautiful piece that includes a trumpeter, a sax player, and a female singer performing. Go check that out if you haven't seen it already. And know that the Jewel Building stands as a mighty bastion and an awesome and powerful legacy of the wonderful heritage of African Americans in Omaha and is there for us to honor and enjoy today because of the hard work of black people who built it, who maintained it, who enjoyed it, and who restored it for the benefit of the whole city right now. Go check it out today. And that's a history of the Dreamland Ballroom. Thanks for listening to the North Omaha History Podcast with noted author and historian Adam Fletcher Sassy. Join us next week as Adam takes you on another guided tour through Omaha's dynamic past. <laughs>